0: Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus again this morning. Just two verses today. These are powerful verses. If the people of God here gathered by the Holy Spirit's ministry, if we would follow these verses, this would have one of the most far-reaching impacts the church could possibly have on the world. On the culture, I think family is probably the most focal point of the Scripture as far as the way that God transforms the world. But very closely related has to be the way Christians live out their faith in the workplace, in the marketplace. Places where you spend an enormous amount of time with other people. Those people will see whether you live what you teach, what you believe, the Scripture says. When people look at professing Christians, they should see a complement between what the Bible teaches, what is expounded, what is proclaimed by the church, and the way our lives look. They should see this. There's hardly a more powerful witness. And my prayer for me, for you, before I even started this preparation, knowing what verses we would come to, is that not one of us would leave this place with the same view of our work that we came in with. Hear God's word, Titus 2, 9, and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let us pray. Lord, these last words in verse 10 ring in our minds that we may adorn, show forth, manifest the doctrine of you, our Savior. Lord, I pray that each of us today would be renewed in our understanding of what our work means, of what it is to be an employee, to be a faithful worker, to be one who is given an awesome opportunity to show forth your grace. Pray, Lord, that we would be renewed, no matter what our past is, our former attitudes about this, or even our behavior, that we would change today, seeing how you have ordained this to be one of the great ways in which we witness forth about you, our Savior. Lord, I pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. It was the German philosopher Heinz who said, you show me your redeemed life, and I may be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. He simply meant to say that claiming you are a follower of Christ ought to show itself very clearly in your life. That a person should know that that person claims to be a Christian. And look at how it's manifested in their life. And it certainly doesn't mean that the person is perfect. So get that out of your mind from the beginning. We know that's not what the scripture speaks of. The only one perfect is Christ. But now Christ in us, the hope of glory, has a way of manifesting itself everywhere we are in the workplace in particular, considering how much time we spend there. I'm guessing half to two-thirds of you work for someone. Uh, You're an employee somewhere. If you work full-time, that translates in our culture to 40 to 60 hours a week. Closer to 60, the stats tell us, for our area. The average person over a lifetime will work 100,000 hours for someone. That's how long you'll be an employee. People who spend... That much regular time with other people will give a true showing of what they believe. No matter what you say, you can have your Bible on your desk, you can run off to Bible study, you can do all sorts of spiritual-looking things, but when it's wiped away, when you spend 8 to 10 hours a day with people, they know whether your life mirrors anything that's in that book, even if they don't know the book that well. And that's what this is about, really. No matter what situation you find yourself in as an employee, as a worker, God calls you to manifest, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I think what we'll see here is that the conduct of Christian employees is one of the greatest ways to show Christ to the world for the glory of God. I truly believe as a church that if you would go out and live the things you hear, the things we talk about, the things we interact over, if we would go out and live those in a very simple way, we would see a whole-scale change in our culture more so than all the legal things we go after or all the proclamations we make, the protests we stage, all have their place. But more powerful would be if all the workplaces in this country would be changed by people who adorn their lives with the doctrine of God our Savior. How much that would change things. And notice it doesn't say you have to go through the four spiritual laws with all of your fellow employees. It doesn't say anything about personal witness the way we usually think about it. It's saying that be faithful, be honest, be dependable, be different. That alone will manifest what the church at large is saying and hopefully give you opportunity in those personal interactions. But don't miss, before the personal interaction comes, there ought to be a complement between life and doctrine. First of all, a question might rightly be asked, and it needs to be answered. What do ancient slaves in this text have to do with modern employees. Now, I would say to you as Americans hearing this, you're the only one in the world that would ask that question. The other six billion people live lives and hold positions and work for people that looks much more like the first century situation than ours. They, didn't have labor, they don't have labor unions over there. They don't have uh, family medical leave acts. They don't have minimum wages. They don't have all the things we have. And so when someone in another country reads slaves, it really is not hard for them to see, well, this is speaking of working. Uh, This is what we have to do. We've got to work. But let's dig in just a little bit. Verse 9 says slaves are to be submissive to their own masters. The New Testament was written against the backdrop of pervasive institutional slavery. And understanding that slavery a bit will help you see how it translates into our work situation today. Now it was diverse. There was all kinds kinds of slavery in this day, but in the in the Roman Empire, Half of the people who occupy the empire, half, fifty percent, were slaves. In Greece, around the where Crete is located, three quarters of the occupants were slaves. Now, understand to be a slave is, is is multifaceted. There's various ways in which you could find yourself a slave. Could be through prisoner of being a prisoner of war. That was a possibility. Most commonly, it was a payment for a crime or an infraction. And then, even more common than that, I should say, was slavery through debt. That was by far the most common way people found themselves in slavery. Uh, They owed money or owed goods, and so they would give of their labor. You can even think of this in antiquity when uh, Jacob strikes a deal with Laban to work for him for so many years to marry his daughter, and uh, there's this debt he pays. And there are also other evidences of this as you have Jesus speaking of the slave working off what he owes. And so that was a very common way people in the Greco-Roman world Uh, found themselves in slavery. There was also man-stealing or kidnapping, where one party would go to another place and steal people, essentially, to be slaves where they lived. You know, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't actually condone or condemn slavery outright. Instead, it gives principles that if they're followed, certain forms would be abolished eventually. In fact, Leviticus 24 actually depicts as a a way of paying off debt Uh, giving yourself to a master for this reason, slavery essentially. And I kind of laugh when I see the bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. You're familiar with that? Is that really a lot different? And if you say, well, isn't it great we don't have slavery today, then you've never been poor. Because poor people feel like slaves. People that have to do this or they'll have this or that taken away or they'll have to constantly pay. It's not called that. We have better terms for it. But essentially, they are enslaved because of their economic situation or what have you. But there's a kind of slavery that the Bible does condemn, and I want to make sure I mention this because it always comes to mind, especially as Americans understanding the colonial version of slavery practiced here. In Exodus 21, it says, "...whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death." The reason why the American and English form of slavery are so condemnable is because their basis is on man-stealing and the further dehumanization of those people. That's why it's condemnable. But slavery as a larger institution is all the world knew at this time, and still in a large part of the world is what people deal with. So Jesus and Paul don't immediately go to abolish the institution, but rather to see people redeemed, and then through that process watch the institution change. In fact, that's exactly what has happened. It's basically because of the application of Christianity to various cultures that we've seen the rise in human rights. It's not because of communists. It's not because of atheists. It's because of Christianity applying the image of God in every man, the Christianity applying what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither free nor slave. Because of this raising of humanity that Christianity has brought, over time we've seen a revolution, really, and a reformation of this particular institution itself, and an outright abolition where it needs to have been abolished. Laterette, the great church historian, said that Christianity is what undercuts slavery by giving dignity to work. And this is where Paul picks up. He gives a dignity to work. He gives dignity to the labors that people partake of by saying to them, what you do in your labor, whatever it is, whether it's a preacher, the ditch digger, you name the profession, whatever it is, As you do it faithfully, you have the opportunity to show the glory of God, bring people to Christ, silence critics. Everyone has that opportunity. Everyone equally has that opportunity, no matter what it is that you do. So if you find yourself in this bad situation in the Greco-Roman world, if you do these things, you can still bring the glory of God to bear. That's the ultimate reality that we all seek. So the text is written against the backdrop of institutional first century slavery. Interestingly, most Greek slaves could attend church. Uh, this is why it's written to a church that's made up of a good portion of slaves, no doubt. Slaves could have been all manner of uh, professions. But they're all called, whether they're farmhands, general laborers, barbers, butlers, cooks, even doctors, they're all called to Christ's likeness. That's the context of this book. And as a result of that, their conduct will bring people to Christ, will bring glory to God. This certainly translates into what you and I have as our work, our employment, what we're committed to, what we have to do. So let's consider the text in that light and see first the conduct of Christian employees ought to be marked by several things. Look at verse 9. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. First of all, submissive, we've heard this word used several times already just in Titus. Paul uses it often. It means a voluntary response of the heart. Submissiveness is not just obedience, that's a simple translation, but you all have had a situation where you personally obeyed something, but your heart wasn't in it. Submission speaks more to the heart, more to the attitude, that we're submissive, we have a voluntary, a voluntary attitude towards what we are doing. You subject yourself to something. Submission to any authority comes from understanding this important truth, that everyone is ultimately under authority. Uh, we shouldn't ever look at someone as the boss. Now, that's the person that God has placed in our immediate authority. However, the boss is God. And ultimately, every person, including our superiors, are responsible to God. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not as to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inher- the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So that boss that drives you nuts, that's just difficult for you to deal with, that you're tempted to gossip about with the rest of the employees, remember, you serve the Lord Christ, who placed that person in that role. Ephesians 6, 5 and following. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, only when they're looking, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now, would you admit with me that if we would just stop here, which I'm not going to, but if we would stop here and just go and do this, what a radical change you would make in the workplace. What a radical change the marketplace would have. If Christians, just those who profess Christ, would go and live as though their boss is Jesus. And be submissive to those who God has placed over us in our places of employment. Employees ought to offer sincere obedience to their employers out of devotion to Christ. I hope if you have a tough boss this morning, I hope that this resonates with you somewhat, that the Holy Spirit would stir this in you. It doesn't mean you're always in the job you should be and should stay there indefinitely, but while you are, to work at being submissive, asking God to give you submission, to advance the cause of the company that you work for, the person you work for, for the glory of God. But it also says in verse 9, in addition, uh, that they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. First, well-pleasing. Uh, this refers to uh, a politeness about them, that they're pleasant to have around. Uh, That's what we're like. We're not the employee that comes in and the boss says, oh, brother, that person, all they do is complain. All they do is complain about how much money they don't make. All they complain about the long hours. They complain about this. They complain about that. And the boss actually gets tense seeing the person come. I hope we're not those kind of people, that we're well-pleasing to our employers. We give satisfaction to them, bring contentment and peace. Not argumentative. I think we can understand this well enough. Respectful. We're not constantly causing strife. We're not always the one who is causing a ruckus in the office. Always the one who's behind some kind of rebellion that's come up. He might say, and justly so, but management is unfair. Tony, you have no idea. You have no idea what it's like to work for this person. And uh, then the list comes out and it sounds terrible, I admit. They do foolish things. You should hear what they do. And then they lay out the list and they're foolish things. Makes sense to me. They don't care about the little people. They step on everybody all the time. And they show many examples to me of where that's the case. And believe it or not, before I only worked one day a week, I used to also work in the workforce. <laughs> you know, a funny story about that. When I first came and was a youth pastor here, one of the teenagers, we were doing something, and she stopped, she says, so what else do you do uh, during the week? I mean, I mean, I know we see on Sunday, but, but what do you do for a job? <laughs> Anyways, back to this. I used to work in various places, and I I think, in my parents will vouch, I had had lots of jobs. And I had all sorts of bosses. And I can, every one of these times, and they're more corporate now, and they're higher stakes when people explain the story to me, but I know what they're talking about, because I remember having that in my life. I remember working for that person, uh, dealing with that injustice, uh, striving against other employees who are trying to shake this up or do this thing. And someone pointed to me, and I don't know who it was, pointed me to scripture on this. Especially 1 Peter 2.18. It was many years after I was in the workforce like this. And 1 Peter 2.18 says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Not only to the good and gentle, they're easy to follow, aren't they? But also to the unjust, it says. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything they to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not the ones that are constantly fighting back. But look at verse 10, the very first part, too. A not oft-used word, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Not pilfering. What does this mean? It means stealing in small amounts. It's a a literal word meant for that kind of stealing. I mean, there's all kinds of stealing. There's grand theft, and then there's petty larceny. And this is the petty version. It's, It's Stealing in small amounts, don't pilfer, and you know and I know if you work for someone, you have a great opportunity to steal in small amounts without anyone knowing. It could mean goods, it could mean services, but most commonly, it's time. It's not working as hard as you can work by the grace of God. Most Christians will say, "Well, I don't steal things. I've never taken anything from my boss, but if you really think about it, you wonder, have you been a steward of the time that they're paying you for? Time-stealing. It could mean conducting personal business or affairs while you're being paid to do a job by someone else. could simply mean not working hard enough. You know, there was a recent survey done across America where nearly 85% say that they could work harder on the job. More than half claim they could double their effectiveness if they wanted to. Now remember, we're not working for them, we're working for Jesus. Now I understand if you're working for them, and that's your total perspective, how easy it would be to pilfer. But if you're working for Jesus, how easy is it then to pilfer? Another study says that time theft, deliberate waste and abuse of company time, costs the U.S. economy over $150 billion a year. This this loss is three times more uh, than it is recognized... uh, It is for uh, for recognized business crime. So the crimes that are obviously identifiable uh, are less than how much is stolen just by time. Some companies uh, report 20 to 40 percent of employee time being stolen. Office employees are 30 percent worse than blue-collar workers, and this may be, according to the study, because of supervision. Uh, Workers under 30 are the biggest offenders, This report says, watch out for executives who set bad examples. If the boss is a time thief, employees will be too. Be honest. Don't pilfer. Show good faith. Honesty in dealing with people on the job. One of the greatest examples of the scripture is Daniel. There's two great examples, Daniel and Joseph, and I'll refer to them in a moment. But Daniel first. I want you to think about Daniel. He's taken into captivity, essentially. So he's essentially a slave and a servant himself. But he is so honest and he is so upright before people are doing everything they can to get him. Listen to what it says in Daniel 6, 4. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So people out to get him just didn't have anything on him because he was honest deal with people in your workplace honestly truthfully but also work hard on the job ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says whatever your hand finds to do do it sorta no it says do it with all your might proverbs 18:9 whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys our work should be at such a level my brothers and sisters That people will never equate, never equate laziness with God. The text goes on in verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. In all good faith, this this refers to being dependable. You could be counted on. You don't just say something and don't follow through. Uh, You're dependable. When you say you will take responsibility for it, you know it's taken care of because that person is dependable. The great example of this in the scripture is no doubt Joseph. Here's a guy had a rough start, no doubt, with his brothers. And so he finds himself in prison, or essentially enslaved, in Potiphar's house. Listen to a few verses of Genesis 39. Instead of complaining and griping about what his brothers did, instead his attitude was, I am here by God's providence. We know that's his view by what he says at the end of his life. And there he finds himself in a servant's role. Listen to what it says in Genesis 39, verse 1 and following. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight of him. He put him in charge of all that he had. He was so dependable, God was so upon him, that the master gave him everything under in his hand, a foreigner, no less. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Well, even what happened in that story, where Potiphar's wife frames him, Joseph refuses her seduction and says... He refused and said, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. My master thinks I'm dependable. I can't do this thing that you're proposing and still be dependable, still be honest, still be God's servant. And listen to what Joseph says. Even though it's going to cost him a a prison sentence. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything he has into my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness against my boss? No, he says, how can I do this great wickedness against God? He remains dependable even when he's framed. He ends up in prison. And of all places in prison, the Lord was with Joseph again. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. He was dependable. He could be depended upon. And any child of God, united by faith to Christ, ought to be that dependable. Any employer should say of the person who claims Jesus that they can depend on them. Will you make a mistake? Then you'll fess it up, and you'll take responsibility for it. And you will be known as one who's responsible He doesn't spend long, well he spends a long time in prison, but in relation to his whole life, he's in Pharaoh's house, the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, and the same thing happens there because he is dependable once again, he's placed in charge essentially of Egypt, he's able to save grain so that he could save his family from which the Messiah would eventually come. Because the dependability of someone who was a slave, a prisoner, just did what God told him to do in the simplest way, and God used him to save a nation and bring forth the Messiah. Slaves be submissive to their own masters, Titus says, in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Finally, the actions of godly workers will show the beauty of God to the watching world. This is what the last part of verse 10 says, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The word adorn comes from cosme'o. and you can think of what words come from cosmeo. But first, understand most specifically, it had to do with arranging jewels in such a way as to showcase the centerpiece. It would be uh, maybe a crown that had a centerpiece jewel, and other jewels would be put around it so that more attention would be paid to that middle one, and it would enhance it. It would decorate it, and you would see that middle crown all the more gloriously because it was so well arranged and decorated. That's what adorning the doctrine of God our Savior means. That your life decorates what is true. The doctrine of our God and Savior is always true, but the lives of believers who manifest it bring it to further light so more people can see it. Uh, what brings out the natural beauty? Cosmetics, cosmeto That's what this word is the root for. Brings out the beauty that is already there. Godliness on the job shows off the beauty of Jesus. Spurgeon said in speaking of this text, is is this not a wonderful passage? Here is a slave able to be the ornament to the gospel of Christ. This blessed gospel is not sent to kings and princes only, but when Paul preached it, the great mass of the population were slaves, treated lower than real people, or even worse yet. Yet the gospel had a message even for them, it told them that they might, by a godly character, adorn the doctrine of God their Savior. Class no longer meant anything if you as a slave could adorn God our Savior. As you as an employer, an employee, you may think, well, I'm way down, way down in the flow chart. But God doesn't care where you are in the flow chart. It's hard to get much lower than Joseph when he was in the pit. He ends up in Potiphar's house as a slave. The flow chart doesn't matter to God. Faithfulness at the lowest possible level can still be used to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're encouraged to know that your work, your employment is an opportunity for a great blessing, great blessing of the name of God, blessing in your own life. It develops character in us. It allows us to be part of God's redemptive plan for the earth in general. And it also affords us the opportunity to proclaim Christ in a regular way, in a powerful way by our lives. And it doesn't matter what you do. One job is not more important than another. In God's overall economy, he works them all out to bring people to himself and to glorify himself. Work itself is a godly calling. It predates the fall, remember. Work was given to us as a good thing. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A significant and often overlooked way in which we serve our God is the time we spend at our workplace. You know, David was a shepherd and a king. Luke was a doctor. Lydia was a retailer who sold fabric. Daniel was a government worker. Joseph was an administrator. Paul was a tent maker. Jesus worked as a carpenter. In all those ways, those individuals were used of God to bring glory to him. Martin Luther said it well when he said that the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship in hard work, in work well done, in that he can use to bring glory to himself. He can even use that to bring a person to Christ eventually. Daniel. There's the other example that you should read to be inspired and encouraged. Listen to what happened to Daniel very similarly to Joseph in that he was... uh, People were out to get him. Daniel 6, 6 the 20th verse As he came near to the den where Daniel was, remember Daniel had been thrown into the lion's den. He was framed. The king cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought in and cast into the den of lions. Notice what happens as a result of the witness of Daniel here. And by the way, I'm not saying it's going to happen to this magnitude for everybody here. But don't you believe it would be worth it if just a You people saw the glory of God as a result of what you did. Then King Darius wrote all the peoples and the nations and the languages that dwell in the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall never have an end. You see, the point is, is Daniel in his faithfulness was used of God to bring glory to himself in his name and his fame broadcasted everywhere else. Very simply, that person, they say they're a Christian. I could see it in their life. I could see what they've done. Who is this God that they serve? Why why do they say they're a Christian? And they ask you. That doesn't happen your first day. It could take a couple years of faithful service for someone to ask you that explicitly. It might take longer for you to have interchanges with someone that will lead to just an explicit message of why we need our sins forgiven and why Christ can provide this. But in time and by God's will, you could see it happen over and over. And I am so blessed on a regular basis at this church. I get emails and discussions with you. I've met some of your coworkers you've invited or had me go talk to. And that is such a blessing because I can't do it from here. I can't, you know, generally when I go into the office place with my robe on, they look funny at me. I don't actually wear it, but you know what I mean. There's a sense in which pastors are, we're up here all excited to tell you to, to do these things. And then when you do, it, it just brings us such encouragement that what we're doing is worth all this effort and worth all this prayer and consideration because you, the people of God, are really being transformed and you're really doing something different in the workplace and you're transforming it. Think of all the competing messages. There is no message more powerful than the life lived transformed before people. There's a great book that I was given. By a businessman some years ago. And this man who started his own business thought of it as his calling, his ministry, and he was right to do so. He said, Although I believe in the application of good principles in business, I place far more confidence in the conviction that I have been called from God. I am convinced that his purpose for me in the business world is to be his representative. My business is my pulpit. Your workplace. Where you are employed, that's your pulpit. That's your place. Paul writes this letter, Titus, and ministers to to the people he ministers to so that the elect would come to faith in Christ, that they would be grown and that the church would multiply. He gives explicit instructions for older people in the church that we have studied, explicit instructions for younger people in the church we have studied. And now he gives explicit instructions to the workers in the church, which makes up a huge Huge group in every church. Why is it so important that we live these things out, brothers and sisters? So that in everything, we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior for his glory and his glory alone. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for giving us work. Thank you for the, the nobility there is in labor. Lord, I thank you for your word and how it speaks so honestly to us, gives us such clear direction. Lord, at the same time, I know there's conviction when we think of this because not any of us has ever been uh, totally faithful. Only Jesus has done this. But, Lord, we look to him to see our lives changed, our attitudes changed. Life's just too short, Lord, and we confess and acknowledge this uh, to live bad witnesses, in front, be bad witnesses in front of those people you've given us so many hours with. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, change us even here today, that we go forth from here in it with a different attitude. Uh, that gives our best for every, to everything we do, that we would work hard to bring glory to you. And Lord, that people would come, that the world would be changed, and as simple as it sounds, Lord, that it would be changed just one workplace at a time with one believer, one person bought by the blood of Christ, uh, living out that reality. And Lord, I pray that that would happen here, even in our midst, that you continue to encourage our brothers and sisters here who see their work as their calling. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.